0: I want to speak to you this morning on the question of the authorship of the Pentateuch. By the word Pentateuch, of course, we mean the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. There is no title over these books which tells us who wrote all five of them, and that point is sometimes raised in order to show that Moses was not the author of these books, but I don't think that point proves very much anyway, because if you were to depend upon that, why you'd never be able to find out who did write them. The New Testament does speak of the law of Moses. And Jesus Christ expressly said Moses wrote of me. And on the walk to Emmaus, he referred to the law of Moses and to the things in the law of Moses, and then the other parts of the Old Testament, which spoke of him. He therefore regarded this law as a law that came from Moses. And then again there are passages in the New Testament where Christ makes statements such as this, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, said, in which he appeals to the man Moses as having spoken. When we go through the Old Testament itself, we find that there are a number of references to the law of Moses, and it is particularly interesting to study the book of Joshua in this connection. Joshua was not the successor of Moses in the sense that he occupied the same position in the economy that Moses did. The only successor of Moses was Christ. The Lord God will raise up unto thee a prophet like unto me. And that prophet is Christ. You remember that in the last chapter of Deuteronomy, we read that there has not arisen yet a prophet in Israel like unto Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. So that the real successor of Moses was Christ. Joshua, however, carried on the leadership of the nation after the death of Moses. <coughs> now, if you will look at the first chapter of Joshua, Joshua, you will find that there is a very intimate connection between the work of Joshua and the work of Moses. And the Lord says to Joshua that just as he has been with Moses, so will he also be with Joshua. And then there is a reference to the law of Moses. Throughout Joshua this appears, and also in the book of Judges, and of course in the remainder of the Old Testament. To take but one example, in the book of Daniel there is reference to the law of Moses. The facts are then that if we take the Bible as it stands, and we don't change the Bible around in order to support our theories, If we take the Bible as it stands, and of course that's the last thing that most scholars want to do, but if we take the Bible as it stands, we find that there soon appeared in Israel a reference to the law of Moses. And this was the Pentateuch. The five books became known as the law of Moses. Now, how did that designation ever arise? How did it ever arise in the time of Joshua, right after the death of Moses? That is, how did it ever arise if Moses had nothing to do with the Pentateuch? There is the question. Now, you can take the Old Testament and act as though it were a sort of a gigantic picture puzzle and change it around to your heart's desire to support any kind of a theory that you want and make it teach almost anything that you want. And that is what a number of scholars do today. Uh, The only way to avoid the problems that the Bible raises is to change the Bible around. You know, I sometimes think this applies in the moral sphere also. There are those who believe that if Astro could have shown that the law was not original with Moses but went back, he wouldn't have to be so afraid of what the law said. If you and I can say loud enough that the Ten Commandments are negative, too negative, and don't meet the needs of today, we can rationalize ourselves into the place where we can sin and do what we want to do. The thing is, if you take the Bible as it stands, then the change has to come not upon the part of the Bible, but upon the part of us. And with all this talk about making the Bible relevant today, really, it seems to me that it's not the Bible that needs any kind of a change, but it's modern man. We'd better get relevant to the Bible. Because the Bible stands, and despite all of the nonsense that is being said about the Bible today, the Bible is going to stand... And our modern theories are the things that are going to pass away. (coughs) Someone wrote a little poem, (coughs) which I'm not able to quote, but the poem had to do with a man that went into a blacksmith's shop. And there he saw in the center of the shop the anvil and a number of hammers there. And he said to the blacksmith, all these hammers all the time hammering on the anvil (coughs) must have worn out the anvil. And the blacksmith replied, no, not at all. It's not that the hammers wear out the anvil, but just the other way around, the anvil wears out the hammers. And that's exactly the way it is with the attacks that are always made on the Bible. They haven't worn the Bible away, but it is rather these theories that themselves become discarded as soon as people (coughs) are tired with them. And so we have to realize that if we take the Bible as it stands, we have here a question that the unbeliever must ask and answer, how did the law come to be attributed to Moses right away after Moses' death? That's the question. Now there's no difficulty at all for the man who takes the scriptures as they stand because We can say that it came to be known as the Law of Moses for the simple reason that it was the Law of Moses, that Moses was the great lawgiver. And let me point out right here that the human author of the Pentateuch, whoever he may have been, was a genius of the first rank. The Pentateuch is a remarkable work. And it is not the kind of thing that could have grown up piecemeal. But it must have had a great mind. Not anybody could have been the author. So if you don't believe that Moses was the author, you practically have to posit somebody as great as Moses who was the author. And then the question is, who would that have been? The evidence tells us that it was Moses. Now, in the Pentateuch itself, there are only six passages which speak expressly of Moses having written. Moses wrote the account of the Amalekites. Moses wrote the book of the Covenant, or most of it. And in the book of Numbers, again, we read the phrase, and Moses wrote these words, and again, and Moses wrote these words for a memorial. But if you will take the book of Deuteronomy, the last book of the Pentateuch, You will find that over and over again, the appeal is to the words of Moses that the Lord gave to him. These are the words that Moses spoke beyond Jordan, for example. And so the Pentateuch is filled with the personality of Moses. If you were to take Moses out of the Pentateuch, you would really have very little left. Now I say there is really a remarkable unity to the Pentateuch. It begins with the book of Genesis as we know. Genesis deals with the creation of heaven and earth and then with the genealogies, with the promises that were made to the patriarchs until under Joseph they come down into Egypt. Then in the book of Egypt, the, of Exodus the history is carried forth. Now it is perfectly evident that Exodus should follow Genesis. Genesis prepares the way for Exodus And Exodus reflects upon Genesis. If you've never stopped to think about this point, just look at the early chapters of Exodus. Take the third chapter. The third chapter tells us about Moses shepherding the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, and coming to the backside of the wilderness, and then beholding the burning bush. Now here we have a miracle. And God appears unto Moses from the bush. By the way, this is a rather troublesome passage for the critical analysis. For we read that when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God spake unto him out of the midst of the bush. And so in one verse you've got the word Lord, and in the the same verse you've got the word God. So the critics have to cut that verse in two, and there they spoil the unity of the whole narrative. Well, just that in passing. When God speaks to Moses from the burning bush, he says, I am the God of thy father. Now, he doesn't mean by that that he is simply the God whom the actual father of Moses worshipped. And that father may have been Amram. There's question as to whether he was the actual father or an ancestor of Moses. But at any rate, God goes right on to say, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. You see, unless you have the preceding history of Genesis, the book of Exodus makes no sense. If Moses had known nothing about the patriarchal period, this language would have meant nothing to him. But God goes on to say, I have heard the cry of my people who are in Egypt. And he has come down by reason of their affliction and their cry and so on, and he will bring them out unto the land that he had promised to the fathers. And so the whole Mosaic revelation is bound up with the promises that were made to the patriarchs in Genesis. You cannot divorce Genesis from Exodus. Exodus presupposes Genesis, and Genesis works up to the events given in Exodus. Let us look at that just a bit more closely. We read of the creation of heaven and earth. Then we read of the preparation for, other, for man in the Garden of Eden. We read of the temptation and the fall, the expulsion from the garden. Then we read of the increase of sin in the world until God destroys the world by the flood. Yet he keeps alive, he preserves alive a representative remnant. Now, after the flood, there is the episode of the Tower of Babel, when men wanted to concentrate and make a name for themselves. But when sin is concentrated, it is a more formidable foe of God's promises than when it is scattered abroad. And so God scattered men throughout the face of the globe. Now it was necessary that the people of God be separated from the world. And so God brings Abram out of Ur of Chaldees. For Abram must be separated from that polytheistic heathen background. And he is brought into the land of promise. And there in the land of promise, God gives to him the promises, renewing them and amplifying them, and also to Isaac. And yet it was not God's purpose that the line of promise be confined only to an individual and his descendants, but rather to a nation. The promises have to be renewed to Jacob, for Jacob has fallen so far away that he has sought to obtain the promise by his own efforts. He is driven from the land and must come back into the land as though there were to be a new beginning. And then, when famine threatens to destroy the people, through Joseph they are preserved alive and brought down into Egypt, in order that there they may be formed into a great nation, so that all that goes before prepares us for the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Now the Israelites had been in bondage in Egypt, and they are brought out of that bondage under the leadership of Moses. And from this point on, from the book of Exodus on, Moses becomes the prominent figure. And Moses brings them out to Mount Sinai where God gives to them the Ten Commandments. Then they wander for forty years in the wilderness. The generation that left Egypt is not permitted to enter the Promised Land because of their sinfulness. But finally, when they have come almost within sight of the promised land under Joshua they are permitted to enter. Now in the book of Exodus you find in addition to the historical material a great deal of detailed information concerning the erection of the tabernacle. And in the book of Leviticus you have detailed information concerning the sacrifices that are to be brought. For this people you see that God has formed is to be a holy nation. It is to be a nation that is like unto the Lord. It is to be freed from sin. It is to turn aside from all that defiles, from all that is impure, in order that it may serve the Lord. And this lesson of holiness is inculcated by the sacrifices that have to be brought. This does not mean that these animal sacrifices in themselves Had the power to put away sin. They did not. Nevertheless, they represented eternal principles, and they were to be offered unto God in faith. In the book of Numbers, we read further concerning the journeying of the Israelites. And we read also of the supreme position of Moses in the divine economy, who stands over all of the prophets, who is the great figure of the Old Testament that points forward to Christ himself. This law is made clear in the twelfth chapter of Numbers, where we read that if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arise, the Lord will make his will known unto him in a dream or in a vision. But not so my servant Moses, he says. In all my house he is faithful. And this passage is taken up in the third chapter of Hebrews, where Moses is contrasted with Christ himself. The two great figures then in God's dealings with his people in history are Moses and Christ. And Moses is the type of Christ. Under Moses, all of the institutions of the Old Testament are subsumed. Even the prophets and the priests and the kings belong to the Old Testament period. They are of the Mosaic age. And it is in Moses that there is the Great One who points forward unto christ himself now when we come to the book of deuteronomy which was given just before the israelites entered the promised land we find that there is a recapitulation of what has gone before (coughs) the word deuteronomy really means a second law not that it is a new and a different law but it is the law that was previously given but given in a sort of a hortatory style, encouraging the people and preparing them for their entrance into the promised land. The book of Deuteronomy begins with a summary of God's bringing the people out of bondage unto the point where they are. It contains warnings against what they will find when they come into the land of Canaan. For example... When they see the sun and moon, they are not to bow down to them. And furthermore, they are not to learn according to the abominations of the nations which exist in Canaan. We are told in the 18th chapter of Deuteronomy that there are nine express abominations which the Canaanites practice, which the Israelites are not to learn. There shall not be found in thee, we read, the one that causes his son or his daughter to pass through the fire, the diviner of divinations, the enchanter, the soothsayer, the magician, and so on. And three specific terms are used for spiritualist mediums. And all of that is condemned. Israel is not to learn that. The lesson that Israel is to learn is that of obedience to her God. She is to be a holy nation who will have a king and to be different from the nations round about her, and so the Pentateuch closes. Now you can see that there is a unity in the Pentateuch. Why has this been denied? Why has this been challenged? Why have men refused to recognize the unity that is there present? Why do men speak about a Hexateuch, including the Book of Joshua with the Pentateuch? Doctor von Rad speaks quite frequently today about the Hexateuch. That means six books. But theologically, that is a wrong conception. Theologically, the five books of Moses are books which belong together, and they were written by the one who occupied this unique position in the theocracy. The book of Joshua does not belong with the Pentateuch. The book of Joshua belongs in the second division of the Old Testament canon, what we may call the former prophets, or the non-writing prophets, these books were written by men who occupied the status of prophet in Israel, but who did not use their names in the writing of these books. They consist of Joshua and judges, first and second Samuel and first and second kings, at least those books, possibly some others. Joshua then does not belong with the Pentateuch and it is wrong to speak about a Hexateuch. It is equally wrong to speak about a tetrateuch, as Martin Note is doing today, and uh, Ivan Engel, who passed away recently, has been doing. This idea which is present today that there is a tetrateuch, means that the first four books of the Old Testament represent a certain oral tradition which is paralleled by the Deuteronomistic (coughs) history which begins with Deuteronomy and then includes these books that I have just mentioned. There is no evidence for anything like that at all. And this theory is just as mistaken as is the idea of a hexateuch. Uh, Wellhausen spoke a great deal about a hexateuch. Now, I'm not going to bore you with a great deal of details about higher criticism. I'm not even pleading for sympathy by mentioning it. But if you ever have to teach the Old Testament... You've got to read what these German critics write. That's part of the something that you pay, I guess. A book has just come into my library which deals with the Sinaitic tradition. And the first part of that book is a detailed analysis of chapters in Exodus showing what part belongs to P and what to E and what to J and so on. And the best time to read that is at night when you find it difficult to go to sleep. <laughs> I have to confess, perhaps this isn't a good thing to do, but I have to confess I can't keep the argument straight all the time, because uh, I don't always know what belongs to J and E and D and so, P and so on. To me, it seems that you'd have to have a lack of a sense of humor to take that kind of thing very seriously when it says the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to see and God called to him out of the midst of the bush do you really think that that verse was written by two different people and somebody pieced it together you go on for verse after verse like that and say this word doesn't belong here it belongs to this document you keep that thing up right along do you really think even aside from the question of inspiration that any book ever came into existence that way you know when we have a committee to draw up a report what they do A committee doesn't draw up a report. It would be a hodgepodge if they did. No, they pick on one poor individual and assign it to him, and he writes the report, and then the rest of them approve of it. Or they don't always approve of it, but they go over it, and then they they change a word here and there and so on. But it's one man's work, isn't it? That's the way things have to be. If you get a, you never yet found a real piece of literature that was written by a committee. It just doesn't work that way. A man has to put himself into it. And all of this criticism is unrealistic. I can't help but feel that some of these men just lack a sense of humor. Or they would never take the thing as seriously as they do. So if you think there are difficulties in believing in the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch, I'm going to ask you to work through this book on the Sinaitic tradition and see whether there are difficulties in accepting that or not, if you can remember it all to know to accept it. Believe me, the critical uh, uh, alternative is a difficult thing to accept. Now, why do people deny the Pentateuch to Moses? Well, for years there have been objections raised about the presence of post-Mosaica in the Pentateuch. Now, let me show you what I mean by that. Post-Mosaicum is Latin, and it simply means after Moses. And this means that there are passages in the Pentateuch that evidently come from a time after Moses. Now, the most obvious of those is the account of Moses' death in the 34th chapter of Deuteronomy. It seems very unlikely that a man would write the account of his own death. And that is what you would have to hold if you maintained that Moses wrote the 34th chapter of Deuteronomy. Now, some of the fathers did believe that Moses wrote that. But what do we mean by Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch? We simply mean that the Pentateuch is essentially Mosaic that he is the great organizer in back of it. Not necessarily that every word of it came from his own hand. Not necessarily that he wrote it all himself. Did Hammurabi write his code that's over in the Louvre Museum today? No, I don't think so. He was a king. I don't think he knew enough to write a code like that. It was done by some artisan who was a real artist. And if you ever see the code of Hammurabi, you'll see that it is a work of art. But I don't think that king could ever have chiseled all of that out and made as good a job of that. But we talk about the code of Hammurabi. All we mean, then, is that Moses is the essential author of the Pentateuch. You may very well hold that the account of his death was added by divine inspiration, let us say, under the hands of Joshua or somebody else. That could very well have been the case. But then you have a phrase such as that in Genesis 12, 6, and the Canaanite was then in the land. Now the argument goes something like this. When it says the Canaanite was then in the land, it means way back at that time the Canaanite was in the land, but he's not in the land right now. And so the argument is this must have been written at a time long after Moses, when the Canaanite was no longer in the land of Palestine. That's the argument. But that doesn't necessarily follow, does it? What is the point of that verse in Genesis? The point is that Abram has now come into the land of promise, and Abram pitches his camp at the Oaks of Moreh. He pitches his camp. He settles there in the... Promised land, but the land is in the hands of others. The land was then in the the Canaanite was then in the land, Moses writes. That doesn't mean that he was then in the land, but that he's no longer in the land when Moses writes. That's reading into the verse. It simply means that at that time when Abram pitched his tent there, the Canaanite was in the land. And that's all it means. It shows, you see, that Abram's faith is to be tested, his faith in the promise of the land. The Canaanite is in the land. How then will the land be given to Abram? Throughout Genesis, we read of the patriarchal faith being tested constantly. Well, another one of these, there are just a handful of them, another one is that in the twelfth chapter of Moses you read, Now the man Moses was meeker than any man that lived upon the face of the earth. And the argument is that nobody would write that way about himself, that that's more or less patting yourself on the back for your humility. There are people, of course, who are proud of their humility, and they boast about it. Now, I know that sounds incongruous, but we all know that that's the case. When a person lets it be known how humble he is, why, well, I'm reminded of the guide's over in the Near East who would come up to me and say, I'm a very honest man, and they tell me how honest they are. I always hold on to my pocketbook when anybody talks that way. (laughs) Because if you're honest, you don't have to go around telling people that you are. Well, now, is Moses boasting about his humility here? Is that really what this means? The fact that Moses writes about himself in the third person doesn't mean that Moses couldn't have written Uh, You all remember Caesar's Gallic Wars, how Caesar spoke about himself in the third person. The Assyrian kings on their inscriptions speak about themselves as Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and so on. They often use the third person. It's quite possible that that could be done. There's no argument or difficulty there. But is Moses really complimenting himself by saying he's the meekest man upon the face of the earth? Well, the Hebrew word doesn't quite mean what our English word meek means. And if he simply meant that he was the most humble man and self-retiring, by then there might be question. That isn't what he means. Moses has been attacked, and he has been attacked both in his own life and also as far as his position is concerned. Miriam and Aaron are asking Has God spoken only to Moses? Has he not spoken to us also? Moses could not answer that attack without drawing attention away from his position to himself. Now there are times when we must defend ourselves. If somebody says that I have done something wrong, I have every right to defend myself and say, no, that isn't the case. If he says, you've told a lie and I haven't, then I have every right to tell him that that's not so and try to straighten matters out. But if somebody criticizes me with respect to a book that I've written, let us say, I think it's a very foolish thing to try to answer a book review and to defend yourself. Because what you do is draw attention away from the work to yourself. Then you're simply attributing too much importance to yourself. And you have to expect a certain amount of misrepresentation in this life anyway. And I think it's a grave mistake to inject our own selves into the matter so that the issues are lost sight of. That's why when you and I are called upon to defend the faith, we must avoid personality. You get into personalities and right away attention is deflected from the issue to men. And that's wrong. Now that is why Moses does not answer here. To have answered here would have called attention to himself. What the Hebrew word anauf means is he was more humbled than any man upon the face of the earth because of the exalted position that he occupied. And had he risen in defense of himself, he would have called attention to himself. He might have said, yes, God has spoken to me as well as to you. And then he would have drawn attention to himself rather than to his position. But because of his position, being the most humbled of men and the most exalted of positions, he could not reply and defend himself. So we read that the Lord spake suddenly, and the Lord came to his defense. When Jesus Christ was reviled, he reviled not again. And they said to him, Answerest thou not a word? Dost not thou see the things that these men are charging? against thee and Christ answered not because to have answered then when he was performing the work you might say of the second Moses would also have been to direct attention to himself as an individual rather than to the work that he was performing and so when he was reviled he reviled not again as a lamb before her shearers is dumb so he openeth not his mouth And if anyone thinks that Moses is boasting by the language that is used here, the translation of this word "analph" in Hebrew in the Greek is prais. And that is precisely the word that Christ uses when he says, For I am meek, proud and lowly in heart. Is Christ boasting when he speaks that way? Not at all. He is describing the truth. If a man can say these things and they are true, then he is not boasting. And so I don't see that this particular verse should be denied to Moses. But then there is that phrase, beyond the Jordan. And we are told that that shows positively that the writer must have lived in Palestine. And when he said beyond the Jordan, he's looking eastward. Now, the answer to that, I think, is that that phrase is used in both senses in the Pentateuch, and it depends upon the context. But the mere phrase beyond the Jordan, Eber itself, doesn't say anything. You know that up until recently, until the Hashemite Kingdom of the Jordan was formed, the district that was east of the Jordan River was called Transjordania. It may be even today. Now, Transjordania means across the Jordan. And I suppose the term originally arose uh, in the minds of those who lived on the west of the Jordan. But I remember once writing a letter from the little town of Ma'an and heading it, Ma'an, Transjordan, and I was east of the Jordan when I did that. Now, the higher critic would say by his logic that I had to be west of the Jordan when I did that. But that doesn't follow at all. So this phrase may have somewhat of a technical significance, and it proves nothing with respect to the standpoint of the author. Well, even if you were to grant these five or six post-mosaica to a later writer and say that they were inserted by divine inspiration, that would not deny the mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch. The real charge against the mosaic authorship is based upon an evolutionary philosophy of Israel's history and of religious history in general. Namely, that all men began as very primitive people and they evolved gradually and civilization is on its upward march. Consequently, you cannot have advanced ideas at a very early time. And the ideas in the Pentateuch The legislation of the Pentateuch was said to be very late. If we read Genesis, we find that there are traces of animatism and animism and polydemonism and totemism and so on in Genesis, and that we can see a gradual evolution of Hebrew religion. Now, this was taught just a few years ago. Harry Emerson Fosdick has a book, A Guide to Understanding the Bible, in which he presents essentially this view. It has been taught up until just a few years ago before the Second World War that the beginning of the Hebrew religion was the same as the beginning of all religions. It began with animatism, the idea that an object, a tree, a stick, or a stone was a deity. And then it advanced a stage to animism, the idea that a tree, or a stick, or a stone had a deity residing in it. Animism is prevalent today in some parts of Islam. Now, where do you find evidence for that in the Old Testament? Well, when Abram came to the Oak of Mora, we are told, Mora means a teacher. He came there believing apparently that some kind of a deity resided in that tree, and he was waiting for an oracle, and the oracle came. Now that is simply reading into the Bible what is not there. You cannot get that out of the Bible no matter how hard you try. But that is the sort of thing that has been imposed upon Genesis. And so, in order to support this evolutionary development, the documents of the Pentateuch, the parts of the Pentateuch have had to be rearranged. The J and the E were the earliest but they were written long after the time of Moses. Deuteronomy came from 622 B.C. Its purpose was to show that the religious cult was to be centralized in Jerusalem, and the priestly document came from long after the time of the exile. This was the most advanced and developed of all. This was the theory of which I spoke the other night, the Wellhausen theory, and I apologize for going into so much detail about it. May I just say this? Some of you may say it's a waste of time to talk about these German theories. Uh, I wish it were. But you know, what is taught in the classroom is what trickles down into the church. This has been illustrated by Paul Bourget, the French novelist. In that rather remarkable story, Le Deceitful. it begins by showing an old German philosopher, and I think this is based upon the life of Immanuel Kant, I'm not sure. This man is pictured as, as harmless an individual as you could imagine. He gets up at six in the morning, he has his breakfast, he reads his correspondence, he engages in his study, he takes a walk, he meets his classes... He does more correspondence. He studies all afternoon. He takes another walk. He eats his supper, and then he goes to bed early. As I read it, I rather find myself filled with envy towards him. You would say as you read this that if ever there was a harmless individual upon the face of the earth, it was this man. But then one day he's called in by the police, not because of anything he has done, but one of his students, has imbibed his philosophy and carried it out to its logical conclusion and committed a horrible crime as the result of it. And then Bourget goes into a rather remarkable psychological analysis of the mind of this man. And the story closes, as I remember it, with this man simply breaking down and reciting the Lord's Prayer and asking for forgiveness. And that's just the way life is. All these German theories may be very far removed from your daily life. And you may say, I don't need to bother with them. The trouble is they trickle down into the church and into the pulpit and into the Sunday school curriculum, and they're doing it. And they are destroying the work of the church. And that's why we do have to answer them. So I do apologize if I've said too much about them, But I want you to know that we have a very real enemy in these things and they have to be answered. They have to be refuted. And the basic argument against the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch is based upon an evolutionary theory of man's development. Now that theory is changing and men no longer put it as baldly as that. They can't put it that baldly anymore for the simple reason that too many facts are intervening to show that this was not the case at all. I want just to give a few of these. It now becomes apparent that the laws of Moses, at least from the formal aspect, were similar to laws that were widespread in the ancient world. And the Code of Hammurabi is a notable example of that fact. But we now have the Lipit-Ishtar Code, which is even earlier, and we have the Hittite Laws which go back about to the time of Moses, or almost. Now, many of these laws are similar. For example, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. On the code of Hammurabi, you have practically the same thing. If a man put out a man's eye, his eye shall be put out. If a man knock out a man's tooth, his tooth shall be knocked out. Now, the Hittite code goes one better and says, if a man bite off the nose of another man, his nose shall be bitten off. (laughs) I don't know whether it was the practice among the Hittites to go around biting people's noses off or not, but maybe they just wanted to be thorough in this. But this type of lex talionis, or law of retaliation as it is called, was widespread in the ancient world. Furthermore, the Gilgamesh epic has a number of expressions and phrases that are similar to those found in the so-called priestly documents it is more and more evident that the first chapter of Genesis is not the result of a long process of development. Now, much as I admire the scholarship of Professor Gerhard von Rod, I think he is basically mistaken in his analysis of Genesis. He maintains that this is refined material, that originally a body of crass material came into Israel, and over the years the priests refined it and refined it and refined it till they finally ended up with the first chapter of Genesis. Now, even apart from the question of inspiration, that just does not work out. What took place in the ancient world was not a refining of material, but the very opposite. Now, this may be paralleled in Egyptian documents. The later Egyptian documents add on to what has gone before. That's a human tendency, is it not? We tell a story and it becomes embellished. And that may also be paralleled from Babylon. The human tendency is to add on, not to detract. So really, Professor Von Rod is asking us to believe something that is well i would say contrary to human nature it is not that we begin with something small and then we are uh, something great and that we refine it and pare it down but it is the very opposite that takes place so you cannot hold that the first chapter of genesis is the result of years of refinement the more you study that chapter and the more you compare it with the babylonian and the other accounts The more you realize its uniqueness there is no explanation of it other than that it is a revelation from god you simply cannot explain it any other way now furthermore the book of deuteronomy it seems could not have been composed in 622 bc there's a moral problem about that i know many people say there isn't but uh, i'm stubborn enough just to go ahead and say there is and this is the moral problem If a number of prophets, or priests, or whoever they were, in an endeavor to get men to worship only in Jerusalem, composed the book of Deuteronomy, or any part of it, the Ur Deuteronomium, if you want, the critics call it, if they composed that for the purpose of getting people to worship only in Jerusalem, and then they used the name of Moses, and they made it appear that Moses had written this book and that the Israelites were not yet in the Promised Land, then they did a dishonest thing. Now, I don't see how you can escape that. I know there are those who tell us that in ancient times there was no copyright law and that people weren't concerned about authorship and that it didn't matter whose name was attached to a document. The only trouble with that theory is it's not true. The evidence does not support that. And even if it were true, to do what these men supposedly did is a dishonest thing. If I want to accomplish some reform in the church today, and I write using the name of somebody else, and making it appear that that other person is saying this, then I'm doing something dishonest. And you can't get out of that. And that is the great weakness in this idea of Galhausen's that Deuteronomy came from 622 or 621 B.C., It posits dishonesty on the part of the author. And I find it very strange that our Lord would have used this book to refute the the evil one at his temptation if Deuteronomy had been produced in the way the critics say it had been. Now, there has recently come to light the fact that in the second millennium before Christ, that is about the time of Moses, A number of treaties were made, and these are called covenant treaties. Uh, They are sometimes referred to as parity treaties, in which they are agreements between two men that are more or less of an equal status. But there are also suzerainty treaties, which are treaties in which one power lays down the law to the other, and these have appeared among the Hittites in particular. It seems Professor Meredith Klein who used to be my associate, has shown that the book of Deuteronomy is composed in the style of these treaties that were current at the time of Moses. You have an historical prologue, for example. You have the stipulations of the treaty. You have the curses and the blessings and so on. Now, if that is so, and it seems that very likely it is so, then how could you possibly explain men living long after the time of Moses having known anything about this particular treaty form? This, it seems to me, is a very strong argument in favor of the early date of Deuteronomy. And if you at once say the early date of Deuteronomy, you have to say the Mosaic authorship of Deuteronomy, because who else was there to write other than Moses himself? To me, this is a rather interesting argument. Furthermore, the whole legislation at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, is given in the form of these suzerainty treaties, which shows that it is of a very early date. Now, there is no parallel to the Ten Commandments. It is true that in the ancient world there were these two types of law, the apodictic law, which is the type of law that simply lays down a command, thou shalt not, or thou shalt Then there is the other type, casuistic, which is far more common, which begins a law something like this. If a man does so-and-so, then a certain result follows. Now, you have that type of law in the book of Exodus also. The Ten Commandments, however, are given in this other form. Uh, It is not the case of, if a man slays another man, he shall be put to death, but it simply says, thou shalt not kill. And it uses the strongest negative in the Hebrew language to express that. Thou shalt not kill. This is so-called apodictic law. It is apparent, then, that uh, uh, the Ten Commandments, rather than being some later development in Israel's history, must go back to a very early time, to the early second millennium before Christ. I would just sum this all up by saying that criticism has found itself really in confusion. There are those who still hold on, as do the German critics, to this documentary analysis. Uh, They talk about J and E and P and so on. But we are being compelled more and more to realize the underlying unity in the Pentateuch, to realize that archaeology has spoken with so powerful a voice concerning so many things in the Pentateuch. We could hardly begin to enumerate them. I've mentioned just a few of them this morning and in the other times that uh, it is now necessary to demand an earlier date for the Pentateuch. And the only date that really satisfies is the date that the Scripture itself gives when it, it puts it back at the time of Moses. Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Moses had had the long period of training and preparation in the desert. Moses was a great person, he was the one man that was able to write the law. Why then deny the thing that is so obvious, especially when our Lord said, Moses wrote of me. So you may read the Pentateuch, and you may believe the promises that are found therein, that you may believe that God did reveal himself to Abram, that God did reveal himself at the burning bush, that he made himself known as the God of thy Father the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and that this Pentateuch, instead of coming late in the history of Israel, is the foundation for the prophets and for all that follows, and that the work of Moses in its fullness is but a type that points forward to the one who would come, the prophet like unto Moses, who in these last days has, uh, the one through whom God has spoken unto his people. Thank you. Yeah.